So it's December 27th, 2008. It's now 5.09 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And um, I'm with my mother now. They were marching against the war, and my husband was there. It was almost like they were dismissing him or calling him a traitor. And, and when I think back, any time people talked about it, I, I just wanted to disappear. In December of 2008, I interviewed my father about his experience in Vietnam. Just this past summer, I interviewed him again for What We Will Abide, and that conversation appears as episode 16. But eight and a half years ago, I also interviewed my mother about how she experienced his time in the Army. After making that recording, it sat for years untouched. I never listened to it. Now, in this episode of What We Will Abide, called Places Unknown, People Like Us, I unearthed the interview in which my mother talks about what it was like to leave New York City after living there her whole life, and to travel to such far-flung places as San Antonio, and then ultimately Manhattan, Kansas, which is near Kansas State University and close to where my father was stationed at Fort Riley. The joke is, of course, that they got married and made the big move from Queens to Manhattan. Just not the right Manhattan. My mother had, in fact, just married my father when they left New York for points west and south in the summer of 1966. He was 25. She was 21. In episode 16 of What We Will Abide called American Cynic, my father talks about being drafted out of dental school, spending a year on the army base, and ultimately being sent to Vietnam. He doesn't talk too much about my mother, but it's apparent from this conversation, pretty much the only one of its kind that I ever had with her, that the experience shaped her early life. She'd probably expected her first years of marriage to look very, very different. Very young, way out of her element, and often on her own, my mother made a semblance of a life. Some of what she said surprised me, especially her recollection of what it was like to be the wife of a Vietnam veteran in the 1960s, 70s, and afterward. She also talked about what my father was like when he came home from the war. March 17th would have been her 72nd birthday. She died in May of 2012, and was in fact diagnosed with a disease that killed her not long after this conversation was recorded. I can't say that my mother and I were especially close, and in fact, there were periods of intense antagonism between us. But I can say that in a muted, veiled sort of way, we understood each other. As much as my worldview has been influenced by my father, it's clear that my mother's acute perspective on things played its own pointed role. We left uh, from Muncie, from um, your great-grandmother's house in Muncie, because that's where we were in the summer. And um, I remember, as if it was yesterday, having this uh, terrible um, experience of vertigo, um, probably the day before we left. And I didn't know what had hit me, but I remember walking in her hallway and not being able to stand up and, and like holding onto the walls. Wow. And it was only later on that I realized that was anxiety of the utmost. Yeah. Um, but we started out, and um, we were in a brand new car. Uh, that um, 
your father's father had bought for us as a wedding gift. So that was exciting. And we had plotted out and had AAA plot out a whole um, um, a route for us because obviously not having you know traveled too far in a car across the country, this was you know daunting, as I said, and so we wanted to have maps and everything else. And I think we had also made reservations at holiday inns all across the country. <laughs> so we were short of a place to stay. And we felt like, you know, that was a good place because we knew what it was going to be like. So we had a destination in mind, and I don't think that, I don't know what Dad said, but we certainly didn't travel that many miles every day. Um, and I don't remember how many days it took us um, to get there, but on the way to Texas, we stopped in Kansas just to get a, you know, like a bird's eye view of what it was going to be like. And um, I remember being kind of shocked just at what the visions were like of the, the streets and the town that we were in. What we later decided was we had stopped at the Army base and we said, I don't think we're going to live here because it was just too weird and scary. And um, when we saw what the town of Manhattan was like, it was very much more agreeable and more familiar to us. So so the reason um, that I was put off by the army base is because we would have had this huge house, which was terrifying to me, the thought of living in a huge house. We had no furniture, we had nothing. And um, it just seemed, you know, vast and ridiculous. Also, as I said, the, the base itself seemed very alien. So what I concocted after we looked at um, this nice little studio apartment in Manhattan, Kansas, which was within walking distance of the university and, you know, looked more familiar, was the excuse that I needed to be near a synagogue and couldn't stay on the base. You made that up. Yes, of course I made that up because there was no synagogue in Manhattan, Kansas. Um, I don't know whether they just, it didn't matter very much to them, um, and we just thought it mattered to them, but, you know, so they gave us a housing allowance. Well, they give it to you if you have to live off, off the base. And we didn't have to live off the base. It's because I didn't want to live in Junction City, Kansas. Um, oh, wait a minute. I don't think it was about a synagogue. I know what it was. Kosher food. Mm -hmm. That's what it was. I needed to have access to kosher food, and there was nothing on the base. As it turned out, there was a store in Junction City that did carry, you know, jarred gefilte fish or something like that, which I wasn't aware of until after we had arranged this whole thing. But no matter, I mean, depending upon the size of the apartment you got, you know, they gave you an allowance. We probably could have been in a two-bedroom apartment for all I know, but we didn't need anything like that. Mm -hmm. So we ended up staying in this garden apartment complex filled with, for the most part, all the people who were the, you know, teachers at the university. So we felt much more comfortable with these people because they weren't all people who grew up in Manhattan, Kansas or wherever. And... Um, it felt more like what we, you know... Was it a like, nice complex? Yeah, it was very pretty, and, and I don't know if you remember, but I have pictures. I, yeah. Um, you probably remember a picture of me. There was a little tiny deck, a porch, outside the door of our apartment, and I once sat there. There's a picture of me sitting holding a yeast bread that someone had taught, taught me to make. We became friendly with the people there, and most important to me, they had a lovely pool. So um, that first, I guess, for that time after we got there, which could have been, it could have been September. Yeah, it was yeah, because we were in Texas for six weeks, something like that. 
In Texas, you were doing what? So in Texas, so this was actually on the way we just did all this scouting out of places. And um, the one thing I do remember is that when we left Kansas and had figured out what we were going to do when we were on our way down to Texas, one of the places we stayed was in Oklahoma. I don't remember in which city. And I remember our car being covered, covered in black grasshoppers. They weren't crickets, they were black jumpers, we used to call them. They were horrible, and they literally covered the whole car. And I remember screaming and saying, you have to take me home, I just can't, you know, whatever. Oh, I just remembered why it is we stopped actually in Kansas. I got sick mm. on the way down. I had some kind of virus. Mm. And we stopped at the Army base so that I could get a penicillin shot or something. And that's when we did all this reconnoitering. But so then we went from there to Texas. And when we got to Texas, it was hot, to say the least. And um, it was pretty awful. Um, if I thought those bugs were bad on that car, the bugs inside the apartment building were ten times worse. Mm. Um, and it was Texas, so they were huge bugs. But... This was a, an apartment building set up specifically for people who, you know, who were on the base temporarily, you know, for the basic training situation. Oh, okay. So there were all people like us. And I think we knew one couple who had gotten down there ahead of time, so she showed, sort of showed me the ropes. And the apartment they gave us was this two-bedroom apartment. And this also, this complex had a pool. And so for six weeks, I, you know, sort of hung around with the other girls and, um, you know, did not too much of anything except I, I learned to, you know, battle bugs. The, the building itself had um, hallways that were outdoors, you know, open to the air, so everything got in. And, you know, Dad would go off in the morning to the base and do his whatever. And, um, you know, we hung out. The ladies hung out, and I did meet what turned out to be very, very close friends of ours, the Wilbergs. And um, as I said, there was a whole cadre of these people, all of whom were in the same boat. You know, they were there, um, mostly from New York, and, um, you know, everybody was going to a different post after we left basic training. Wilbergs uh, were going on to Alaska. But we were the only ones that had what seemed to be, like, the worst possible station to be in, in Kansas, Kansas seemed to be the worst. So, you get to Kansas, you're there for about a year. Yes. What did you do in Kansas while he was at the base? So, um, the first thing that I did was I investigated the university for a job. And um, I found one. Actually, one of the things that was really quite extraordinary, finding myself in you know what seemed like nowheresville, um, the job I got was with someone who was doing a... Um, a sociological study, and I was an assistant in this research project. One of the first days that we got to Kansas, and before I even went to the university, Dad and I were out looking for some place to eat, and there was a pizza place. Well, it wasn't exactly pizza, <laughs> we know it, but we went in and we ordered pizza, and there was a guy playing guitar at the front of the restaurant playing Tom Paxton songs, and that was Jim Sistrom. I mean, I didn't know him then, but it was later on when I met Joan. And we got very, very close to them. And he, unfortunately, had adult-onset diabetes, and he died um, a few years after we left Kansas. But they had a lot of kids, 
And we spent a lot of time with them, and they were really lovely, lovely people. It was she, in, in retrospect, who hired me to be this assistant, and we had a great time together. And we actually traveled throughout Kansas um, because she was studying different counties and what were the influences that made kids want to go to college and, and which counties were... Um, I actually have a study here if you ever want to look at it. But it was, you know, it was a wonderful job that I really enjoyed going to. And while I was there, I decided to take a course, a graduate course. And I took my first counseling course at um, Kansas State. So that's what I did there. And gradually met all the people, most of the people who lived in this complex, including um, the caretaker and his wife, who were kids who were a little younger than us, because Bobby Goodicke was her name. And she, um, her father owned the complex. They were originally from Kansas City, and she had married this yokel. I mean, he was sort of kind of, uh, you know, a, a bumbling kind of guy, Klaus. But he was very attractive and good with his hands. And so he fixed everything, and um, we had a good time. Um, I, I was able to ride on a, on a um, lawnmower tractor. <laughs> You know, they really took care of the whole property. We also had the experience there of um, living through a tornado. And we had already seen the devastation the original tornado had caused there because right before we were married, must have been six months before, there was a tornado in Manhattan, Kansas. I remember, you know, calling Dad and saying, this is where you're taking me? So we did, um, we watched a tornado, which was quite an extraordinary experience, and kind of got a hint of why people in the Midwest are so religious. Um, because when you see this kind of thing happening and the temperature drops, I don't know, 20 degrees in a minute, and the sky gets green, and it's just absolutely the eeriest thing you've ever seen, mm. you begin to think there must be something larger than myself mm. out there. In the summer of 1967, mm -hmm. uh, his colonel called him in and said, we're sending you to Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. So what was that like? I don't really remember. It's kind of a blur to me because I don't think I thought that anything was going to happen either. Um, it was a huge post. It was a huge dental con uh, attachment that was there. So this guy had to choose out of a large number of people. 62. 62 people, okay. He had to choose three. He chose the Jew, the African-American, and the Italian. And I, I cannot tell you that I remember what it was like to hear it, but I was devastated. It was um, a little puddle jumper that you had to take from uh, Topeka. So you had to fly into Topeka and then take this little puddle jumper. My sister came at some point to visit. Um, I don't remember my parents coming and my grandmother. Your sister, who was probably, what, 15 at the time? Um, a little bit older than that, but not much more. And she actually came, and she had some um, big-term paper to finish, and Dad did it with her. It was on Mazzini and Cavour. It was during Christmas she came, and that was very nice to have company from home. And then my grandmother came, of all people, because, you know, she went everywhere. And that was very exciting, too. Well, actually, when we came home, one of the things we decided to do was to go away for a few days before he went and that was the first time we ever went to Provincetown. Mm. So that was our beginning experience, and it was sometime, I think, in October. 
uh, the end of September or the beginning of October that we went for this long weekend in Provincetown, and it was magical and lovely, and um, it's what started us on our love for that area. But yeah, we um, we took him to the airport. I, don't, I guess my father didn't come. And um, yeah, I remember the three of us standing there with our faces pressed up to the window watching the plane, and we're all sobbing. And of course, for my mother, it was deja vu all over again. So um, I think she felt it even more profoundly in some ways because she knew what it was like to be left. And um, it was horrible. It was just a, a very awful feeling, and there was no way of knowing what might happen or where he would be. Um, and you didn't really know how much information you were going to get and how good the communication was. Not like you could get a phone call. At this point, he had no idea where he was going, so no, you had no idea where he was going. No, absolutely not. It could have been somewhere in the boondocks, which, thank God, it turned out not to be. Um, How do you remember his mood being? Stoic. Um, I remember him, at least I think, I remember him not betraying any sense of fear um, or worry. I don't think he seemed nervous about it. He seemed almost excited. Hmm. And um, even his letters uh, were, you know, mostly of the adventures that he had. I mean, I guess he wasn't going to write about, you know, how sad he felt or how lonely. And I'm not sure that he felt that way all the time. I think he had the experience of being the one who did the leaving, which is much easier than the one who stays home. Mm. So, um, yeah, he seemed pretty, oh, don't worry, everything will be all right, you know, it won't be that long and I'll be fine. I'm a dentist, nothing's going to happen to me, that kind of stuff. And I still have his letters. And um, I think I still have mine, too, because he kept all of them. You waited for those letters. They were really the only connection that you had. And um, he wrote pretty well for him, you know, <laughs> considering when you think about it, um, I think he probably wrote once a week, that's for sure. And the only time I did not receive mail was during the Tet Offensive, and that was so unnerving and so terrifying to have no communication and not to know what was happening with him that I ended up actually leaving my mother's house and going up to Muncie and staying with um, Lonnie and Elliot mm. for a couple of days because then I didn't have to be waiting at the mailbox all the time waiting to see if, if a letter Did you go out to the mailbox like every day during that period I, of time? I think so, yeah. What did you hear about what was going on? Um, what we heard about what was going on was, you know, just all these Vietnamese were being killed right and left, and they didn't talk very much about American casualties, and the war was on television. It was on television every single night, and you couldn't escape it. The most, I know you haven't asked me this yet, but during that period, the most painful thing for me was being the only one I knew. It was, it was so, um, it was, it was being in some sort of strange netherworld. There was one other person, I hadn't known her from before, but I knew her just from the group of people whose husbands were sent. She had an infant when her husband left. And she went home to stay near her family in Long Beach or something like that. And I visited her, even though she was like the least likely friend, not someone that I would have been comfortable with, but we had a bond that nobody else had. And um, it was good to know that she was there. And I remember one holiday season baking cookies with her to send to them. 
But we didn't have to really talk about um, the experience because we got it. We knew what it was like, and I spoke to her often. He mentioned the same people. He couldn't remember their name either. He, remembered, yeah. he mentioned the cookies. Which yeah, I'll, I'll he, think of her name. Which arrived as dust, he said. Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. But I had friends. I had plenty of friends in Flushing. And, um, you know, I would be with Sue and Howie or I'd be with somebody else, and it felt like I was, you know, the weird one. Were people talking about the war? Talk about the war. They were demonstrating against the war. They were marching against the war, and my husband was there. And I always felt it was such a, um, not disrespect, but not understanding what it felt like. It was almost like they were dismissing him or calling him a traitor, because actually, that's what they were saying about people, not about dad, but... Um, you know, anybody who was in Vietnam was, uh, you know, a criminal. And it was very hard to distinguish between, you know, the politicians who made this happen and the men who were there. And I always, of course, in our position, we sided with people who were there. Well, you know, it's not like they were there because they chose it and they weren't there doing harm to people intentionally. They were there because they had to be there. And besides, we were protecting the Vietnamese. Hmm. And of course, that's the story, that, that word, those were the stories I heard from Dad hmm. on how, you know, he did his best to help people out, like the woman in his, um, in his dental clinic, who was his assistant, who was Mrs. Nam, who was, you know, was very, very close to her. So, um, it was just a very bizarre feeling to be completely out of step, and not just out of step with your friends, but on the, on different, on the other side of the fence. And and when I think back, any time people talked about it, I, I just wanted to disappear. Mm. So it was strange, it was a strange time, and um, I probably, I mean, lots of women who did this ended up staying on the army base, and now I understand why. Because they were surrounded by people who understood and were supportive of them. And, you know, they were part of a culture that, um, you know, they could feel comfortable in. What were you doing at the time to occupy your days? I was teaching. Um, I, uh, I was a substitute teacher at PS20, the school that I had gone to, right across the street from where my parents lived. Because I knew the woman who called the sub, she had been my first grade teacher, she called me you know, as often as she could, so I worked a lot. Hmm. And I hated every minute of it. <laughs> Why? I never enjoyed it. I, I knew when I was in college, and I took that as my major, I really had no affinity for it. Took what as your major? Education. Education. That was your major in college? Yep. I don't know. Um, I minored in psychology. I just remember thinking, I, I know I don't like this. I mean, I don't enjoy this. I don't enjoy teaching. I don't really enjoy, you know, teaching little kids. So it was just a thing to pass the time. And um, the only break that I got and the only thing that was really dramatic and exciting was my trip to Hawaii to see your dad. All I remember about the flight, I sat next to this sailor. He was flirtatious even though, you know, it was clear that I was older than him and I was married. And so it was very exciting. And when I got there, I had arranged the hotel that we would stay at. So I was going to be there for an afternoon and a night and another morning by myself. Again, I'd never been any place alone before. And um, I found this 
beautiful hotel and this lovely room, and I ended up having room service for dinner because I was afraid to go out by myself. <laughs> and the next day, um, your dad came, and um, I will never forget the sight of him to this day. It was very exciting, um, but he looked like a different person. I almost didn't recognize him because he had really, as he said, bulked up when we were first married and I was cooking these 10-course meals, you know, when we were in Kansas. So he, he, he was probably up to about 160. And when I saw him next, he had lost 30, maybe 40 pounds. And he was, you know, brown. He had practically no hair because they shaved their heads practically. And he weighed 125 pounds or something like that. So it was, it was really a shock. And um, it was very exciting. It was just very exciting to be with him. We had a wonderful time. And then when he left, we both went our separate ways. And then in the airport, I saw him again. And it was so wrenching after I had said goodbye to then see him. I'm not sure if he remembers, and he'll tell you whether he saw me or not. But I remember thinking, oh, this is just too much. I've, I've said goodbye, and there he is again, and I can't get to him. So you asked about when he came home. That was also a very exciting and romantic homecoming. He was coming home. Um, he was coming to an Air Force base in California, and we stood on the tarmac, basically, when this plane came in. It was, you know, nothing like there is in airports today where you don't get to see the plane land, you don't get to see the people come off. And I watched as each guy got off the plane, and one or two of them I knew. And it was as exciting as seeing Daddy somehow, seeing them. Their wives were not there. And for whatever reason, they were meeting them someplace else, and then it was Daddy. And it was just so exciting to think that this was it. You know, it was over. It wasn't going to happen anymore. And then we moved into this apartment, which was like, around the corner from where my parents lived. And, um, you know, we sort of resumed life as we know it. Um, I don't know that Dad had a job yet. I think that he was looking. In thinking back on it later, I realized he was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, but I didn't know it. How did that manifest itself? Um, he would, if, if we lived very near the airport, that's um, near LaGuardia, and if a plane came overhead, he'd freak out. And he do? did that for months. What would he do? Um, he would start to tremble, and he, he seemed to be frightened. Um, he tried to hide it, but it was definitely there. And I couldn't... At first, I couldn't connect it. And then... And I don't think that he was aware of what the trigger was for it until we kind of put it together. And, you know, he said, yeah, the planes. And we didn't talk very much about why that would be. Um, there was really no discussion during that time at all about, you know, people coming home from Vietnam and what that might be like. First of all, they were ignored for the most part, and they certainly were not fetid in any kind of the way. You know, it's not like people welcomed them home with open arms. They were considered, you know, shameful in a way. You know, this is a war we lost. Uh, we shouldn't have been there in the first place. It was against everything. So... I think that it really stigmatized the people who were there. And um, it didn't matter whether you were a 
foot soldier or a dentist, you were there, you came back, nobody really wanted to hear about your stories. We felt pretty much alone with whatever he struggled with, and not as if we could talk to anybody about it. Um, the rest of the stuff, there were some physical things later that I think are attributable to having been there. Um, like what? Um, he had a lot of stomach problems, and, I mean, you know, that's where a lot of people metabolize their anxiety. And he had a real, and, and this is not something that began with Vietnam, but it certainly was exacerbated by it. He had a real um, distaste for authority. And he, I think he got a lot of traffic tickets. There was a general sense of a, you know, screw you, authority kind of thing. And it was, I think it was as if he was trying to fit in and he couldn't. Um, again, not stuff we talked about a lot. Not until much, much later. I don't think that he had words for all of it, and I don't think that he understood that what he was feeling was understandable. It's like if you have um, if you have a term for something, or you have a prior knowledge that you know people go to war and they come back and they've been hurt in some way. And certainly we knew that in World War II, but nobody was talking about it. Here, I mean, they talked about it in World War One and World War Two, battle fatigue and all kinds of other things. This was this was not thought of in this way because it's not as if he saw combat. Um, he saw the results of combat, and he had his own fears being in a setting in which he didn't know from one minute to the next. And I'm sure he told you who was friend or who was foe. But there was no. There was no conversation available for this sort of thing because this was a different kind of war. Um, if there had been some acknowledgement by the media or uh, psychology or whatever that everybody suffered who was there, then there would have been a context for a discussion. You know, a lot of what I remember him talking about were the um, was his uh, the impact of being in this foreign culture, which was so exotic. So exciting. So a lot of what I remember hearing about was, you know, was dad's introduction to outside of New York, you know, or, you know, this is the world. It's so exotic and so fascinating. And here we are sitting in restaurants that Hemingway sat in, and it's such an exotic, magnificent city, or was, and the French influence was so exciting. So it was some, from a cultural and historical viewpoint is what, you know, that that's what he transmitted was such an impact on him. You talked about volunteering to go to the morgue. You talked about giving these kids quarters, you know, and give them a rest from the front. Mm -hmm. Why did you do that? You know, and I kind of pushed him, and I said, is it because you felt... He said, well, I felt, you know, I owed it to him because mm -hmm. we were Americans and we were in it together. And I said, is it because you felt privileged? Because mm -hmm. he said, I said, is there a class... Something to do with like a, a you know a class reason for it because he said most of the people that were there were black or poor whites uneducated, mm -hmm. and so I said, did you feel basically did you feel guilty that you were? Mm -hmm. He said, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean absolutely. Um, you know he'll he'll continue to tell the stories about how you know they lived in splendor, relative splendor compared to obviously you know what the fighting troops were living. In. I mean, he had a maid. 
you know, he had someone who did his ironing. You know, what's that? You know, that's that's bizarre. Um, and they were made to feel as if they were special. They were, you know, officers. Um, so, yeah, there is that sense of, you know, where do I belong? And, you know, should I be getting all these privileges? And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a better, better way to live than how they live. But what about how they live and, and die also? You said, um, you know, in the 60s, you felt very much anything like an outsider. You believed what he told you, at least initially, about protecting the Vietnamese. And so the anti-war protests felt aimed at you. Did that change? You know what? I don't think it ever changed. I think it stays in time as some sort of separate, <laughs> separate, distinct um, time in history that I haven't changed my mind about because I can't take myself out of it. Mm. Does that make sense? Mm. Um, with so many other things, you can look back and say, oh, yes, politically, blah, 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 that was such. But this was so personal that um, it's hard for me to separate it out and think, oh yeah, that was a shitty war, and that should never have been fought. I can think it conceptually, but when I go back to what it was like, it just feels as if I was the them that we point to now and say, you know, the military. I was them. Even though I did my best to separate myself out, even from the get-go, by not staying on the post and not participating, I was then. And so it's hard for me to reconcile, you know, what it might have been like for me to have thought, could I have marched against the war? No, I, I couldn't have. Without an intellectual basis, yeah, sure, it's just all feelings. It's, that's, that's all it is. The only other thing that I think that I worried about was what the long-term impact would be. But I thought, this is going to have an impact on the, us for the rest of our lives. This is not just something that happened and, it, you know, the impact will be reduced over time. This is going to change us in some way. And I, I don't think that I can articulate exactly how, but I know that we're different than the people who didn't have this experience. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. to this episode of What We Will Abide. Original music is by Morning Stillness. You can find older episodes on iTunes and on my website, samschindler.com, as well as What We Will Abide's Facebook page. Please feel free to leave a comment, a question, or a suggestion for an upcoming episode idea. Also, please rate the podcast on iTunes, and if you're feeling inspired, you can leave a review as well.